Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our historians simmer with rage until violence is unleashed upon the realm. The podcast where the shadowy forces of myth are righteously persecuted to the grave and beyond. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm flying solo tonight as Kyle has a work commitment. So you're stuck with me. But not just me. Because today, dear ragers, we are diving into the power behind the throne of 17th century England. Or are we? For joining me tonight to play this Game of Thrones, I am joined by historian, writer and broadcaster, Leander Delisle. Leander, welcome to History Rage. Hello. Feeling angry? Livid. Good, good. Now, you came to us courtesy of recommendation by first by Charlotte White when she came on to Rage about... Uh, well, just shut up about the Tudors and start talking about the Stuarts. And then again by Miranda Malins back in Series 6 when she came to rage about Cromwell. I gather you've come to rage about the other side, but but before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit about you, your books, your history of how you came to be here at this pinnacle of your career on our podcast? Well, I mean, I think the first thing you need to understand is that I am fundamentally an angry person. I mean, for years, uh, I worked as a newspaper columnist and I did different kinds of columns. I did funny columns. I did political columns. I did different kinds of columns. Um, but the one qualification you need to be a successful columnist is you need to be an angry person. You need to have that sense of rage burning away inside of you. And... Um, Dangerously, I stopped being a columnist when I started waking up in the newspaper in the mornings and instead of raging at the newspapers, I started pointing out pictures of fluffy animals to my husband. So um, I gave that up and I took up history. But I soon found there were many, many things in history that made me very, very angry. Um, and the story of Henrietta Maria is one of those things. Okay, so let's let's dive straight into that then. So. Um... You know how History Rage works. We always have our History Rage questions. So shall we start off then by asking Leander, with all of the rage from a suppressed career that you had to give up, 
Would you please tell our baying mob of history ragers what you wish everyone would just stop believing? I wish everyone would stop believing that Henrietta Maria wore the breeches in her marriage, uh, that she was a religious fanatic, that she caused the civil war, that she ruled Charles I, that she introduced theories of divine right kingship to England, that she was a dreadful mother. I mean, I could go on. Oh, well, please do. (laughs) Well, we should begin perhaps with those things and then I can find other things about her to rage about. Certainly. So I'm not a 17th century man myself. My my tastes are are a little more 19th century. So who was Henrietta Maria, aside from the subject of your latest biography? And what is it about her life story that really gets up your nose? Right. Well, she was the daughter of Oricat of France, the great warrior king who fought the wars of religion in France. He was a Protestant who became a Catholic and uh, he was assassinated when his youngest daughter, Henrietta Maria, was six months old. Um, she uh, was uh, her brother then became king of France. Her mother was regent of France, Marie de Medici. And she's said to have been very like to take in attributes of both her parents, which we can come into later. Um, but at 15, 15 years old, she was married to Charles I of England, uh, the king who, as many of your listeners will know, was the chap who, whose head we chopped off. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to say there that her mother was a Medici. Now, that is a name that rings, rings a lot of alarm bells if you're looking to malign somebody's reputation. Yes, and poor old Marie de Medici has been horribly maligned. I mean, I think, personally, I think the word fabulous could have been coined for Marie de Medici, who was certainly a a larger-than-life character. Uh, I mean, in France, I mean, nowhere in Europe were women uh, supposed really to rule. It was believed that, you know, women should not rule over men and that Eve in the Garden of um, Eden had set a bad example in this regard by supposedly seducing Adam into disobeying God. Nevertheless, when her husband was assassinated, uh, Marie de Medici had seized power uh, to rule France as regent uh, for her young son. And uh, she taught her daughter that, essentially, forget about Eve, forget about Eve and in the Garden of Eve, Eden and how awful Eve was and how wicked and pathetic women are supposed to be, um, to have been seduced by Satan. And think instead of the second Eve, the Virgin Mary, Queen of Heaven, Mother of God. She has the ear of God, and therefore I, as Queen of France, as the mother of the King of France, have a better right than any boring male minister to advise my son. And this was a lesson that Henrietta Maria certainly learned. What is it about the life story that annoys you? The life story, I suppose that... Henrietta Maria is very much treated as it regarded as the an absolute example of Eve, this particular sort of female archetype, um, in that she is supposed to have um, you know met her sort of innocent little husband, although she was a child of fifteen and he was a king of twenty five. Anyway, there he was, poor innocent little Adam slash Charles the first, and cut off. Over to France comes this 15-year-old minx and somehow she sort of seduces him into becoming a Catholic in a Protestant country. 
and so causes the civil war. Um, so this is one of the things that particularly, I suppose, enrages me. And I think one of the things you have to remember, not only was he 25 when she was a child when she arrived, uh, he also already uh, believed in divine right kingship. His authoritarianism was already uh, in place. I can tell you a short little story, which is that a, a, a girlfriend of mine was saying the other day, she was saying to me, oh, well, of course, you know, Henrietta Maria brought ideas of divine right kingship from France. And I said to her, no, um, Charles got his ideas of divine right uh, kingship from Scotland uh, and indeed from his father, uh, James VI mm. and I. So that's just for starters. So moving on into the wider picture then, what, what is, for those of you out there that are not aware of her, aren't looking, aren't looking too much into, uh, I say the Civil War, Kirsty Mackenzie will string me up over the War of Three Kingdoms. Yes. What, what is her reputation currently as, a, as it stands at the moment? I know you reeled off a litany at the start in your rage, but, but what is the common idea of Henrietta? Well, well should we talk through it? Because there are sort of slightly different phases. So, hmm. um, I suppose, at first, I mean, Charles Charles I uh, became king in 1625, and he managed to sort of pick uh, wars with um, the two great powers, Spain and then France, both of which um, he lost, which has nothing to do with her. But he also uh, had rowed with his, his, his parliaments, and he rowed with them about uh, three things. One was that um, they blamed his military failures on his favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, who he refused to sack and who she also detested. <laughs> and they were angry about his religious reforms. He was head of the Church of England, of course, um, but he liked a particular kind of you, what you would now call a sort of high church version of, the, of, 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 of Protestantism, which sort of more Calvinist elements of the Church of England disapproved of. And um, also to pay for these wars that he insisted on fighting. Um, when if, Parliament, if he didn't get on with Parliament, who wanted to sack his favourite, he began to raise money outside Parliament with forced loans, um, and which endangered the very existence of Parliament, whose chief purpose and use for a king was that it was a very effective tax-raising body. And she was blamed for all these things, uh, particularly after Buckingham was murdered. There was no one else really convenient to blame. And you had this girl. She's foreign. She's French. She's Catholic. She's referred to as that popish brat of France. So she's blamed for these things that are actually nothing whatever to do with her. And that's in the 1620s. Mm-hmm. Buckingham, as I said, is assassinated in the 1628. In the 1630s, Charles is ruling without Parliament because he's had all these rows with Parliament and he's refusing to have, have any more Parliaments. This is blamed on her, but it's, it's not her fault. And in fact, on the contrary, because she wants to encourage Charles to go to war with the Spanish Habsburgs, which was something her father used to do, which would require a great deal of money and which would require also him to call a parliament. She was, in fact, really rather on the side of the parliamentarian cause in the 1630s and indeed was the leader of a Puritan court faction with whom she was very close. So Hmm. this woman who's supposed to be a sort of Catholic fanatic and anti-parliamentarian is it is actually all much more complex than that, and uh, Charles uh, does indeed have a mind of his of his own. So there's that part of her reputation. She's also during the 1630s 
In England, this is known, later it's known as the 11 years tyranny because Charles is ruling without parliament. At the time, at court, it's known as the Hallison days of peace and plenty. She's very happy. She's having children. Her marriage, which was very rocky at the beginning because they rowed over his friendship with the Duke of Buckingham, for example, in the 1630s. Her marriage is very happy, very strong. She's having sons. And, you know, she's the sort of leader of fashion, of theatre. And this is described by some as frivolity. And again, this is very much a kind of female sin, a female crime, frivolity, mm-hmm. um, because it indicates the innate moral weakness of women, which is why, again, we allowed ourselves to be seduced by, you know, Satan in the Garden of Eden, blah, blah, fish cakes. And the truth is that, you know, Charles I and all his courtiers used to flounce around in enormous amounts of lace. And Charles I himself had little bells hanging from his clothes. But because he did that, no one accused him of frivolity. So it's just sort of, you know, ridiculous. Um, and actually, you know, she's, uh, there, there are a lot of um, women in London who are making a great deal of money on the back of her being a fashionista. As I said, in the theatre, she's a great patron of the theatre. She's a, she's a, she encourages, you know, the female voice, um, female-centric plays. And she's also a, uh, an important collector of modern art. Um, so she's, a, she's, she's actually a, a serious figure in, in this regard as well. So that's, gosh, and I'm afraid... Then there's another queen again in the 1640s, but maybe I'm going on too long. Oh, no, no, do carry on. I'm, then, I'm sitting here in rapt attention. Okay, so then, anyway, so Charles um, is the head of the Church of England, as I said, and a part of his belief in divine right kingship is that he believes that he has the right to rule his, his, his subjects, uh, not just in their lives, but also their souls. And this is actually quite anti-papal because he doesn't, you know, he thinks that he is Pope in England, basically. And a part of this is that he wants all his subjects to worship as he did, which is in his sort of high church version of the Church of England. Hmm. So he then decides he's also king of Scots, which is a separate country, a much more Calvinist, Presbyterian. And he decides that he's going to impose an English style prayer book on the Scots. And I think it's P.G. Woodhouse who said that, you know, it's not difficult to tell the difference between a ray of sunshine and a Scotsman with a grudge. Um, and Charles found that out um, because, you know, they um, threw a massive rebellion fit of pique against... Yeah, they don't like anything like that. I mean, you could you could impose English free money on the Scots and they'd object to it. No, exactly. In fact, I'm sh- I hope you have many, many Scots on this podcast because I'm sure there's plenty, plenty that good, any good Scotsman could rage about, indeed, including this period. But anyway, so... Um, it all goes wrong for Charles. As I, as I mentioned earlier, he loses wars against Spain and France in the 1620s. He now loses against the Scots in the 1630s. He's not great at winning his wars, Charles, and um, kings are supposed to win theirs. Anyway, so Henrietta Maria, who has, in fact, in the 1630s, trusted him, as it was said, um, and, um, you know, what is it they said? They said had her faith entirely in the king. Uh, is now beginning, understandably, to have her doubts. And she does start giving him advice. And it's suggested to us that the advice she is giving him is, you know, be more Catholic, which he isn't. Of course, he's actually anti-Catholic. And in fact, despite what people may tell you, was in fact persecuting Catholics and fining them at a greater rate than he ever had before. Although I grant you, he had actually stopped cutting the balls off priests 
on public stages. So I suppose, you know, that's yeah. something, something to be said for that. Well, we're not barbarians, are we? No, no. Well, we well we were, but not for this brief period. And um, anyway, so um, and then when it was in fact, the, she's doing the opposite, and she's saying to him because he has to call a parliament now at the end of his eleven years' tyranny because he has to pay the Scots off to go back to Scotland, and he needs and he needs money. And the MPs are understandably very very angry, and the most radical of them want to strip him essentially of all power and turn him into a puppet king. And they do this by spinning a particular narrative to, I suppose, prompt, to sort of prompt the more moderate MPs into, into going along with the, their radical decisions. And, and their narrative is that the war with the Scots was all a, a sort of popish, popish plot you know, led by the Queen and so forth. Uh, now, Charles wants to come on down on everyone like a ton of bricks, but... He can't. And uh, Henrietta Maria is actually advising him, look, mate, what, or my love or whatever, my heart, actually, she called him dear heart. What you need to do is you need to give up powers before they're taken from you. Don't be stupid. Give up powers before they're taken from you and focus on regaining the love of your people. That's what she does. But unfortunately, Charles is incapable of showing the necessary uh, flexibility. And then what happens is he tries to arrest five members of parliament uh, for uh, treason in the House of Commons, and he fails to do this, and it's a massive scandal. And the result is that he has to f- he flees London uh, with her and some of their children, and he's le- essentially lost London, and this is the prelude to civil war. This is just foretaste of civil war Mm. in which she is about to save his bacon shall i tell you about that yes please do okay so again this frivolous moronic purposeless queen that we're told about who's just a sort of silly twit floating around in her frocks and there was a very annoying documentary in which i I actually uh, was involved sadly which depicts her in her house in, in in greenwich spinning around like a headless chicken and a kind of frock. So, you know, why Why do they depict her? I don't know why they depict her like this. It, it, it literally does drive me mad with rage. Anyway, so um, this supposedly witless woman goes to um, Holland um, where she's going to raise uh, money and arms for her husband because Parliament, who has London, as I said, mm-hmm. uh, and the parliamentary cause have most of money, many money, men and arms in England. Yeah. Now, there's a very famous description of her when she arrives in which her 13-year-old, well, Charles's 13-year-old niece, whose mother is in, in exile, who's married to a, a German. I won't go into all that now. But anyway, this 13-year-old sees her. And Henrietta Maria has had a terrible time for the past couple of years. You know, she's been blamed for everything. Her life has been threatened. Uh, you know, her husband's in a sort of disastrous situation. And she hasn't been sleeping. She's had to have opiates to sleep. And she's complained that she's losing her teeth. Okay. Anyway, so this 13-year-old girl gives a description saying, oh, my God, she doesn't look anything like Van Dyke's portraits. You know, her teeth are sticking out from her face like guns from a fortress. That's the, her, the, the quote. Now, historians constantly quote this thing, line. And, and it's as if she's always had bad teeth. It's like, oh, yes, she looks pretty in her portraits. But really, she's a hideous old bag with, you know, teeth that stick out like guns from a fortress. 
Well, you could say that about Elizabeth I. Well, and probably be quite true. No, exactly. But this is an absolute example of selective quotation, which is always used against her. So, Henrietta Maria was not losing her teeth when she was a beautiful bride of 15. She was not losing her teeth in the 1630s when she was being painted by Van Dyck. She's losing her teeth at this precise moment, at this very, very stressful moment in her life. Okay, And I would say that a 13-year-old girl is probably not the kindest viewer of a woman in her 30s Who's, who's been, a, you know, who's, who's in a very bad way and ill. And what historians don't say either is that Henrietta Maria was extremely charming and then deployed her charm on this 13-year-old girl. And a couple of days later, the girl is writing another letter saying how she's changed her mind and how beautiful the queen is, her eyes so lovely, her complexion so beautiful and so forth. We never hear this. Why is that? Well, I'm afraid it goes back again to Eve. So Eve appears beautiful in the sense that she can seduce Adam. But like the wicked queen in Snow White, behind the beauty, the beauty is the ugliness of sin. The fact that she is the devil's doo-doo. Mm. You know, and the same with Henrietta Maria. So these bad teeth are really a mark of sin and, and, and and we do this all the time now. So if any of you saw the film Wonder Wo- Woman a few years ago, you would have seen Wonder Woman looking beautiful in her tiny girl shorts. And you would have seen her enemy, another woman, Dr. Poison, is scarred and disfigured. And indeed, disabled people are beginning to complain that they're a bit fed up with always being you know, cast as the baddies in fiction and drama. Mm. And because we're still go- we're still using these these very ancient ideas, and they're so much a part of our culture and the way we think, we don't even notice that we're doing it. Anyway, so that's that point. So, do tell me if I'm banging on too. No, long. no, no. You said this is the this is great stuff. <laughs> this is the sort of rage that I'm looking for. Anyway, so she um she then raises money and arms very successfully in Holland, and the result is that Charles, who's expected to lose the first great battle of the Civil War uh, at Edge Hill uh, in the autumn of 1642, survives the battle and the Civil War continues. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hmm. So, you mentioned there a, you know, the, the background kind of style of advice that she's giving and i'll come on to a bit more detail of uh, of style of advice um a little bit of a later question 
If I can go right back to the start there, though, that you're saying it's not her that gives him this idea of the divine right of kings or turns him into the authoritarian that he that he was or all potentially always was. You know, why, why is it untrue to pin it on Henrietta Maria? What does actually cause it? Well, he got these ideas, he was taught these ideas by his father, James VI and I, who wrote two long treaties on the subject while he was King of Scotland. And the reason James wrote them and said that essentially that, that he said the kings should obey the law, but they that they were but that they were above the law and that only God could punish them. And the reason he did this was that at the time at the Reformation, people, both Protestants and Catholics began to argue that a king had to have the right religion. So the great question, of course, is what is the right religion? Mm. Well, if you're, if, you're, if you're a Catholic and your monarch is a Protestant, then they're the wrong religion, so you should try and kill them. If they are Catholic and you're a Protestant, then they're of the wrong religion, you should try and kill them. And indeed, this happens, and you have you know, many assassination attempts. And indeed, Henrietta Maria's father, as I man- mentioned earlier, was assassinated, in his case, he was a Catholic and he was assassinated by a more extreme Catholic who was annoyed that he allied with Protestants against the Catholic Habsburgs. He came from the Bourbon, French dynasty. The Habsburgs were their great rivals. So these ideas come from James. They come from Scotland, essentially. and They don't come from Henrietta Maria at all. But the reason I think it's assumed is, as I said, I mentioned there are a couple of reasons why people have it in for Henrietta Maria. The the the, the one is um, that she's Catholic and it's it's and it's and it's tied to the fact that and we're of course a Protestant country. Mm-hmm. There's the whole Adam. There's the whole women thing, Adam and Eve. There's that, and then there's the fact she's a Catholic. And it is a sort of part of our national myth that Protestantism paved the way to democracy. And because we have internalized this myth, it's very easy for us to believe, very quick for people to believe, oh, well, Henrietta Maria, she's Catholic, so she must be responsible for Charles's authoritarianism. I mean, clearly, these ideas couldn't have come from Presbyterian Calvinist Scotland, Good which Lord, is more no. Protestant than England. No, no, they must come from Catholic France. Fact is, they don't. They come from James. So you mentioned she is a Catholic, and she's re- she is referred to as being a kind of a Catholic fanatic. So why does that annoy you? Again, because it's sort of profoundly untrue. I mean, people were obviously much more re- religious in those days, and she certainly thought Catholic was best, just as Protestants thought Protestantism was best. Um, but so she arrives in England, and the idea is that she's sort of going to sort of... <laughs> sort of make this very Protestant country Catholic. Well, I think it's quite difficult for a 15-year-old girl to do that. What she does, what she is expected to do by her Catholic family and her godfather, who is the Pope, is do her best, to do her best to protect persecuted Catholics because her husband is the most notorious persecutor of Catholics in Europe. So that's one thing, which is hardly a great crime. So, for example... When it comes to the coronation, and Charles has promised when he marries her that he's going to you know, stop persecuting Catholics, at least moderate the persecution. He's not going to stop, but he's going to moderate it. Mm. But, it's quite the wedding present, that really, I know, isn't it? I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Less balls on tables, as I was saying earlier. But anyway, so, 
so he promises this, but then for various reasons, partly to protect um, the Duke of Buckingham, he actually increases the persecution. And this involves fining Catholics who refuse to go to Protestant services, religious services. The result is that they end up in prison where they die of plague or they can't feed their families, their families starve. So when Henrietta Maria is asked to take part in the coronation, which is a Protestant ceremony, when she's going to be crowned at the hands of a Protestant bishop, she says, no, I won't. And this is, I would argue, not the you know, attitude of a, of a fanatic. She is simply you know, wanting to stand by her persecuted co-religionists. Mm. Also, she has many, many Protestant friends. The France in which she was brought up, her father had introduced these things called the Edicts of Nantes, which gave Protestants... The, religious rights. So Catholics and Protestants can practice their faith in France. This is the France that she grew up in. She comes to England, Catholics cannot practice their faith. And so I don't think I don't think uh, she could be described as a fanatical one. She has a French doctor who is a Protestant. She has Protestant friends she makes in England. As I said, in the 1630s, one of her closest friends, even reputed to be her lover, though he wasn't, was a leader of the Puritan court faction. So in my view, not a, uh, a a religious fanatic at all. And after all, she's married to a Protestant king. She sees this as a part of her father's, as in 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 the same along the same road as her her father's history of of alliances with Protestants against the Catholic Habsburgs. With yeah. So you've mentioned in the in questions that you'd sent through to me that. Um, she has this reputation as a bad mother, particularly towards the youngest of her sons, Henry. Yes. What can you tell us about that and, and, and why that gets up your nose as well? Yes. Okay. So one of the things I think is true in general of us all, I would say, is although we, we will have certain character traits, which we keep probably from sort of, you know, early childhood even, um, we nevertheless, change don't we we change over time and so with henrietta maria too you know the teenage queen is is um of the 1620s is different from the more mature happier queen of the 1630s and then you have the wartime queen of the 1640s um when she really takes a leading role in the civil war and then after her husband is executed in 1649 you have again another queen she's very traumatized by charles's execution she tries to make sense of it. God obviously must have a hand in this. This is what they believed in those days. Something I believe she would certainly have ch- shared with Oliver Cromwell and all sorts of people on the other side. And she tries to make sense of it, but she can't. She she knows that Charles made political mistakes, and she understands that. But why why has God been so? Why did God let his, him die like this? And she can't bring herself to blame him for his sins. And so she says it's all down to the sins of Henry VIII you know, who broke with Rome and so forth. And so she does become much crosser about that. And and she does put pressure on her ladies in waiting to convert, some of whom do. But nevertheless, she still has, I may say, very close friends, notoriously one called Henry German, um, who again, she was supposed to be her lover, which he wasn't, who stayed a Protestant all his life. But anyway, so... As I said, full disclosure, she does become, you know, much more sort of anti-Protestant, you might say. But mm. her son, Harry, who's been and spent the whole civil war in England, 
since he was a tiny boy, so she barely knows him. He arrives in France after her after after the execution and everything. His last memories of his father are sitting on his father's lap. He's a he's a tiny boy, and his father looking into his face and saying to him, "They are going to cut off thy father's head," and saying to this boy, giving this boy things that he wants him to remember to do. And one of the things he says is, "You must obey your mother in all things, save religion." And he explains that he is going to die for the Protestant religion of the Church of England, the Episcopalian Church of England. Another reason why it's ridiculous to say he was a Catholic. I mean, he died a Protestant martyr. You can't be a Protestant martyr and a Roman Catholic. Anyway, put that aside. So Henrietta Maria wants to convert Harry. He's determined to convert him. He's only 14 years old. And when he says no, understandably, bearing in mind his father's last words to him, she throws him out of the house. Now, for this, she is berated for being a cruel and heartless, terrible old bitch. What a fiend monster she is. But actually, as she explains to her eldest son, Charles II, who's in exile this time, the Stuart cause is an sort of absolute nadir. You know, there's not like there's any chance of Charles II becoming, going back, becoming King of England and, and uh, again, um, and indeed Scotland, although he is technically King of Scots. And um, he's penniless, powerless. And he says she doesn't want the same lot for Harry. And if Harry becomes a Catholic, then he can marry a rich Catholic princess or he can be made a cardinal or whatever. So that's one of the reasons why she wants him to convert, as well as, of course, that she thinks Catholic Church is the right one. But that's there are other practical reasons for it. And the reason that she throws him out of the house I mean, he's not on the streets I and mean, he's looked after by courtiers and all the rest of it. You know, he's not sort of left to sort of pick up scrap, scraps out of bins or something. Yeah, anyway, he's, he's out of the house in the same way that Prince Harry is currently exactly, out of the house. Exactly. Not quite as well off as Prince Harry, it has to be said. But yes, because none of the Stuarts were. But yes, unfortunately, no California for him. But yes, he, in a similar sort of way. He's, he's thrown out of the house. And the reason is, is that she cannot afford to be seen as weak. Because she is Charles II's principal support in Europe, as she was for Charles I, and she can't afford to be seen as weak. And Charles I's sister, the Protestant exiled winter queen of Bohemia, behaves in exactly the same way. Two of her children, her Protestant children, become Catholics, and she cuts off contact with them for the same reason. She can't afford to be seen as weak. But again, we see an example of selective storytelling where the heroic, you know, winter queen, none, none of that sort of mentioned all glossed over. Whereas Henrietta Maria, you know, is this sort of fiend, fiendish mother. And the tragedy is that when Charles II is restored to the throne and she's really looking forward, and she writes how much she's looking forward to the family being reunited, uh, you know, with Harry and everyone. And this boy dies, age 21, just weeks before this can happen. And then there's another story that really annoys me that comes next. Okay, which I think leads me beautifully into my last question then, which is, uh, after the restoration of Charles, what what happens? What happens to to Henrietta Maria? And what do you think of this traditional view of the restoration that we have? So the traditional view is this. There's um, 
She appears at court in November. She arrives back in England in November 1660. Charles II has been king a short time. Obviously, like we all think, you know, Charles II, Mary Monarch, blah de blah. And Samuel, um, Samuel Pepys, the diarist, is, arrives at court and he sees her and he describes her as dressed in black and looking very ordinary. Harsh. This is asked most historians then leave it. They say, here she is, you know. And the, the implication is that she's not sort of rejoicing. She's destroyed. She's a, she's a hag. She's a shriveled old hag. And again, I think it goes back to Eve because what does the devil want? The devil wants disorder. God is order. There's an ordered universe. Satan wants disorder. And civil war is, of course, disorder. And so you cannot have Henrietta Maria, who is, of course, you know, an agent of Satan, rejoicing and enjoying her son's restoration. No, she's dressed in black, looking very ordinary. It's the hag revealed, the hag behind the seductive mask that seduced Charles uh, into becoming a Catholic and so forth and causing the civil war. So what they don't, and then it's tumbleweed. You don't hear any more of the fact, although she lives for sort of another, nearly another 10 years, you don't hear any more. That's it. Fade out. Again, however, this is an example of selective quotation. She's dressed in black because her son Harry has just died. And yeah, she's feeling a bit miserable, as you might when, you're, when your young son, age 21, has just died and you've missed yeah. the reconciliation. You might not be feeling your cheeriest. Two years later, Samuel Pepys has another diary entry. By this time, Henrietta Maria has been described as the Phoenix Queen. She's incredibly powerful, again, at court. Her influence is seen everywhere, in French fashion, women talking on stage. She loved, she really encouraged the art of conversation in England in the 1630s. And there's a, there's a, there's a man called the Earl of Halifax who, who complains bitterly about this, you know, this terrible habit of talking now that people seem to go in for at court. And Samuel Pepys says, she has the greatest court nowadays you know, greater, that is, of Charles II, with the most laughing and mirth. So the thing is that another thing you don't hear about Henrietta Maria much is her sense of humour, and her life is full of examples of humour. One of her friends describes her as by nature gay. And here you have her, the gay woman that she's always been, who's always cracked jokes, even in the most extraordinary um, circumstances. And indeed, if I was going to sum up her life, uh, sum, up, sum her up, I would think, well, you could say she's very brave, like her father, courageous. But um, it's a French phrase that really comes to mind for me, and that is joie de vivre. Mm. It was a woman full of joie de vivre, and that's how I would leave her. There's a couple of parts to this question. So it's implied that she consistently gave Charles bad advice and you've given a couple of examples of kind of good advice that that she did give first of all is it what was her you know what were some other examples of the good advice that 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 she was consistently giving and did she continue that on into the court and the reign of charles ii so yes her good advice. So she gave, I think, excellent advice often uh, during the Civil War, during the Fighting War. Uh, when she arrived back in England, it's interesting how many people came to see her. Uh, generals like Montrose had been, had, had been told, 
that Harcourt was more stable than that of Charles, i.e. she had, she was, had a more fixed sense of purpose. Uh, she was able to persuade parliamentarian generals, leading commanders, to change side. Um, but to give you a specific example of the kind of advice she gave, um, she almost helped him win the Civil War in, um, uh, in 1643 when she returned to England. And, th- and that summer of 1643, uh, he wanted to go off and deal with the sort of siege of Gloucester. And she was saying, you know, we've had all these victories. There are riots in London at the moment. There are divisions within the parliamentary cause. And indeed, one of her old friends, the Puritan courts leader that I mentioned earlier, was, was about to defect and did, in fact, defect that summer. She said, what we need to do is now we need to use the men, money and arms that I have brought over and we need to take London. And she was keen for him, to, particularly keen for him to win the Civil War that summer because she knew that the Scots, who um, were sitting out the Civil War at this stage, um, having beaten Charles uh, in their rebellion, they were sitting it out and they were waiting to see who was likely to win. And if Charles looked likely to win, then they would probably join on the parliamentarian side, which they did eventually. And at that point, the numbers would be against Charles. So she advised him, strike now, strike now, take London. And he didn't. And um, she went back to this again and again in the years ahead as as the turning point uh, where Charles really sort of lost the Civil War. And indeed, it was even mentioned at her funeral. Uh, and so that is an example both of advice um, that may have proved excellent, and certainly many people thought it was good advice, and also an example of, of, of her not ruling him, but on the contrary, him going his own way. And I'm sure that there are many, many times such as this, when she had wished that the myth that she wore the britches, as they said, was true. So did she did she carry on and advise Charles II's court and influence his reign and rule at all? Um, she did. Yes, I mean he was. Um, of course, I was having spent many years in exile. He uh, had picked up a lot of uh, French habits. He is reputed to have died a Catholic on his deathbed. Whether he did or not, we really don't know. She wasn't really, I mean, she, what, what was she involved in? She was involved in, again, protecting, protecting, uh, the Catholic minority, which she did really quite successfully. But I don't think she was so into advising him because, you know, he was his own man. She was, she, and she was advising Charles. She advised Charles at a period in Charles's life. So she, at a period in Charles's life when he'd been stripped of his ministers, they were being executed by the opposition in parliament, by his enemies in parliament. And he really needed her. Charles II, you know, was in in an entirely different position. So she wasn't really sort of interfering in his day-to-day affairs at all. I mean, when they were in exile, much more, she did certainly give him advice, which they often had flaming rows. And again, this is sometimes translated, though they had flaming rows, therefore she must have been a bad mother or he must have disliked her. But I think actually you can have flaming rows with your nearest and dearest People you love most, you probably, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, who bothers to argue with their enemies? You can be asked, frankly. Um, you know, one often does argue with one's nearest and dearest. And uh, Charles II certainly adored his mother and was very sad when she died. But so, yeah, she advised not in the same way as she advised Charles I during the, during the Civil War. So we know what she's currently remembered for. 
uh, and we've you know we've just spent 45 minutes outlining the fact that this is all is all incorrect so what is the mark in history that she did leave behind that you wish everybody would remember her for i think i think um perhaps the love of conversation the love of wit and conversation i mean she encouraged that very much at the english court people think of the Tudor appeared as being sort of, I don't know, maybe they think of it as being quite jolly. I mean, they're quite wrong. Elizabeth's court was very sort of stuffy. And um, then you had James the First court, which was just sort of drunken and badly behaved. And uh, she really introduced to England the idea of, yes, enjoying wit and good food and good wine and all those things, which I suppose you could label frivolous. <laughs> and so I think that's a mark that she left. Again, I mentioned joie de vivre. I think that's that's there's an echo of her joie de vivre still that she that that went on. Well, thank you very much, Leander. That has been that 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 has been all the rage that was recommended to us because both Charlotte and Miranda did say, you know, like that blue touch paper, and Leander will just go off. So <laughs> that 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 has been a simple joy to behold. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Do you feel better? I think I've got a certain amount out of the system. Yeah, it's oddly cathartic. Well, thank you once again for coming on. Well, if you'd like to know more, then you can start with Leander's excellent range of books, which we'll have links to in the show notes. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Leander Delisle. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel and Kyle is at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. Now that is the end of the season, so we are going to take a little bit of a break now. We will see you again in two weeks time. But until then, stay angry. Bye bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.